some of you will know that uh, my ancestors came to England at the end of the 17th century from France. They were Huguenots, Protestant refugees fleeing from the increasingly repressive uh, Roman Catholic regime in France. They came to live in East London. And at that time, there were thousands of uh, Huguenots in the East End of London. It was said you could walk from one end of Brick Lane to the other and not hear English, people used to complain. You can only hear French. Ironically, 300 years later, you can still do the same in Brick Lane, not hear English, but it will be Bengali these days. Um, Some things uh, hardly change. My ancestors lived in London as foreigners in a little French enclave. They spelt their name in a French way, C-A-U-M-O-N-T, Comont. They spoke French. They made silk fabrics that were described as according to the continental style. But it didn't last. Within uh, just a few generations, the Huguenots were thoroughly integrated into British society. They changed the spelling of their names. Comont became Comont. Monsieur and Madame Dubois, in fact, would even translate their name into English and become Mr. and Mrs. Wood. Uh, And uh, they lost the ability to speak French, at least my family did. And that story could be repeated again and again throughout history of groups of exiles, foreigners, living for a while in a strange, in a a foreign land, but then in fact over time just assimilating into their, uh, uh, their environments. The exception, therefore, the exceptions to that rule are absolutely amazing. And one such exception is Bible-believing Christians. In almost every age and uh, and every place, Bible-believing Christians have been a minority, they have been a counterculture, and that's certainly the case in our culture today. Hardly a week goes by without a reminder that we live in a in a culture that is at best apathetic and sometimes actively hostile to evangelical Christians. But in every age and in every culture, you see again and again and again that those Bible-believing Christians, that, that group, that distinct group, preserve their distinctive way of living. So that now God's church has survived and thrived for 2,000 years and has done that in culture after culture after culture so that now it is a global movement. Of course, we're not a different race. We don't speak a different language. But we are distinctive. And the very fact that God's people do not, in just a few uh, generations, assimilate into the surrounding culture and get lost should give us pause for thought. How does that happen? 
How is it uh, on the grand scale? But how does that happen in individual lives? Which is perhaps more pertinent to us. How do individual Christians who have to live as a minority in, in, in a world that doesn't follow their ways, how do those individual Christians maintain that different way of lifestyle, of life, that different attitude, that different set of sexual mores? How do they do that? Well, Peter's going to tell us a little bit this morning about that because he was writing to uh, an early scattered group of Christians he calls them scattered exiles in chapter 1 verse 1 we saw that last week and he repeats this idea of them being foreigners of people not in their own uh, culture in verse 17 live out your time as foreigners he says in reverent fear and he knows that as they live in that way, in that different majority culture, there is a pull on them like, like, like a riptide for a swimmer, pulling them away from the shoreline that they're swimming so desperately towards. And he's going to say, actually, the solution for those people is not just swim harder. The solution is that actually God has thrown out a rope from that shore, from his eternal home. And they need to catch hold of that rope. And he, as they do so, he will pull them in to their eternal home. And that has been the experience of God's church and God's people in every culture for 2,000 years now. I want to show you this morning uh, a little bit about how God does that so that we can be people who live a different life. The first thing Peter um, um, says The first of five things that Peter says is that we must be people with a new focus. In fact, this passage that uh, Susie read to us, though it's not entirely clear in the English translation, revolves around five clear imperatives written in exactly the same way. And we're going to look, we're going to pick those five imperatives out as we study this passage in 1 Peter. And the first one, this one that uh, enjoins us to have a new focus, is in verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. The main imperative there is set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. He's saying we we await a great day when Jesus returns, when Jesus sets up his new heaven and his new earth, when all people rise again and God's people begin their eternal resurrection life in which there is no mourning, no crying, no, no death. And he says, focus your attention on that. Focus it with alert minds, he says. 
with minds that are alert, or literally, with the loins of your minds girded up. It's a funny um, uh, 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 turn of phrase, but almost certainly it's designed to allude back to the Exodus in the Old Testament, where they were told to gird up their loins, literally to tuck their cloaks into their, into their belts, so that their sort of long um, uh, garments wouldn't hinder them as they ran from the Egyptians towards the promised land and he says you need minds that run like that from the captivities and the, the, the temptations of this world to the glories that God has set before you we need minds that are sober as well um, uh, 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 in, in control of our faculties. The first, the first thing that, that keeps us then on the right track is to look at the promise that God has given us of our eternal future destiny. That is an amazing purifier. Set your hope on it, he says. The second uh, imperative is that we need to uh, focus on our new identity. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. The imperative there, the key one is, be holy in all you do. But that's not just a simple, you must try harder. No, he sets it in the, con uh, the context of something very important. To be holy is to be conformed to the likeness of God. As God said in the Old Testament, he says, be holy because I am holy. And we are conformed into, uh, being conformed into that likeness, um, not entirely by our own efforts, but because we are, as he puts it, chil God's children. We are adopted children. In other words, he's saying, you have a new identity as children of God. And that actually gives you the ability to be holy in all you do. I mean, imagine a boy for a minute, a boy from a, uh, a really rough family. And finally, that family becomes so dysfunctional that he has to be taken into care and adopted. And when he arrives in his new home, he swears. And his adoptive father says, we don't do that in this family. And he's shocked be honest, at first he's uncooperative. What right has this man to tell me how I should speak? But actually, over time, the atmosphere and the environment of this new family, as they don't swear at him, as they speak kindly to him, helps him move from swearing to first not swearing by an active act of the, the will, to just finding that that drops out of his vocabulary. 
And this boy used to stay up late all the time. Family didn't care. They didn't insist on, on bedtime. And uh, he goes to this new home and uh, his adoptive parents said, I'm sorry, there's a bedtime. And you go to bed. And he hates it. But he wakes up in the morning well rested and he finds himself uh, better able to deal with his anger and to concentrate at school. And he looks altogether a happier boy. And he even finds that his body adjusts that he feels sleepy at bedtime. And there was always anger and violence in that former home. So he was used to, to punching and kicking and so on. And in this new environment, that just slowly seeps away. A couple of years later, the social worker comes to see the family and they see this boy and they say, he's a different boy. That's how God changes us. We live as adopted children of the Holy God. And as we learn to live as obedient children in that new status, then God transforms us. As we enjoy his forgiveness, as well as his discipline and his justice, his grace, his love, it seeps deep into the soul of God's children. So that now the instruction, be holy, because I am holy, comes as not an alien command, but a command to be the person you are. New identity, then. It's really, really important. The next imperative is about new habits. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear, he says. And again, the key imperative is live out your time. It's a word that sometimes is associated in the Old Testament, at least, with walking. It's about the way that you walk, the the habitual way that you put one foot in front of another. In other contexts, it's sometimes associated more with turning. It's the way that, it's the way that you turn consistently in different uh, circumstances. And um, uh, he explains and elaborates what that habit should comprise in verse 18. You know that it's not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. In other words, you see, the habit of a believer is to habitually turn to the forgiveness that we have in Christ. That 
is an eternal forgiveness. It was one not, not with some perishable thing, but with the eternal blood of Christ. It is a precious thing, Peter says. It was, it was the blood of God the Son that paid for your forgiveness. So that, the, so that our forgiveness now lasts um, uh, uh, forwards into all eternity. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. When God raised Jesus from the dead after he had died on the cross, when, God, uh, when Jesus ascended into glory, that was our solid, eternal promise that now there is nothing in the way, nothing to stop us also being raised and glorified with Jesus. Because he has paid the penalty for all of our sins, past, present and future. That is the gospel. And that, that binds us, you see, to God in an indelible way. So that now, for believers, our habit is again and again and again. When we fail and when, when, we, when we forget God and when we stumble and all of those things, our habit is to turn back and say, please forgive me. Thank you that Jesus' blood is enough. And that new habit is life transforming. You say, but how can absolutely free forgiveness liberate us to live a new life? Surely it actually sets us free to go off and live some awful life with, some, with, with, the, with the confidence um, that, that uh, God will always forgive me. I shall sin, said um, uh, a French philosopher. Um, that is my job and God will forgive me. That is his but it doesn't happen. Because in a true child of God, actually that eternal forgiveness binds us to God with a bond of love, an unshakable uh, um, uh, relationship that we are changed. So... Christian, caught in the riptide of this world and feeling yourself pulled away from the eternal shore that God has called you to, don't just try and swim harder. The tide is too strong. Every movement uh, on, in history almost that has tried to stand out against its culture has dissolved. Hold on to the rope that God throws for you. The rope of your new focus. You are promised that internal inheritance over there. The rope of your new identity. You have been made a child of God and as you live in his family, he will transform you. The rope of new habits which turn to your eternal forgiveness that Christ bought for you on the cross again and again and again. Those things, those things really will transform you and keep you living a different life. 
two other imperatives we must look at briefly, which are not so much essentially about our relationship with God, but which um, Peter brings in here because they are also vitally important. He talks about new affections in verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. That's the imperative, love one another deeply from the heart. Why is it there? It's there because Peter knows that no believer can keep going on their own. That is why God God ordained his church. And that is why God said that in the family of God's people, the local church, there must be love. Deep love from the heart. Because it is that deep commitment of, of Christians, one to another, of believers, that keeps us going. Yes, we need those primary truths about our relationship with God, but we need one another as well. It is our great calling, then, to be people who reflect the love of God. If you're semi-detached at the moment in this church, then you're sitting dark for the devil, frankly. It will be no surprise if he picks you off and you find yourself in a little while having no resemblance of a Christian walk. Get stuck into the church. Join a home group. Find one or two people to pray with. Confess your sins with them. Develop that strong, loving relationship. You were not designed to walk alone. And the last imperative, the last imperative is found on, um, in the beginning of chapter 2. Therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Crave pure spiritual milk. By that he means the truths of the Bible. That's clear because he prefaces this section with the, um, at the end of uh, chapter 1, verse 23, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, all their glory is like the flowers of the field, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. The word of God, he says, gave you new birth. The word of God lasts forever. And we live forever as we We feed on that word of God like babies craving pure spiritual milk. Just ask Ruth Moore if you want to know how babies respond. They wake up regularly and they have one desire to have their tummies filled again. Be like that, says Peter. In our previous generations, Christians used to speak 
of uh, Bible reading discipline as no Bible, no breakfast. I will treat my uh, feeding on the word of God as of the same fundamental importance as my breakfast. And uh, perhaps with some legitimacy we could accuse those people of being legalistic. But it made them into spiritual giants. And too often I think in today's world we find ourselves actually dealing with Christians who are horribly undernourished, emaciated because they just don't feed themselves if, 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 you're, if you do not have an appetite for the Bible that is as real and as constant as your appetite for food Pray to God about that, that he would do that in your heart. Because it is absolutely fundamental to keeping going and living differently as a believer. Bible reading won't automatically make you a better person, just as milk won't automatically make a baby walk. But if you don't give a baby milk, it dies. So that is uh, Peter's call. There it is. To us. To live differently in this world. We must take seriously that we live in a world that is not sympathetic to the call of Christ. We live in a world particularly where there are all sorts of sexual temptations. Such as has rarely been seen. And it is, most, it is the most common pastoral problem that I, I deal with with people, with them struggling with some kind of sexual temptation or another. But it is not just that. We live in a world that, that tells us to use our money differently. Tells us, tells us to raise our children differently. Tells us to have fundamentally different attitudes about what is good for society and on it goes how do you live differently and not just get assimilated into this world here's what we need I honestly don't know what you need Perhaps for you, it is you need a brighter, clearer vision of our resurrection hope. It has made an enormous difference in my life to start to see the glories of what the Bible promises us. And it has weaned me off the false glories of this world. Perhaps for you, you need to deal with guilt. 
Perhaps your experience of failure has left you despondent, left you feeling cut off from God, and left you even more vulnerable to failure after failure. That's very common amongst Christians. Perhaps you need to see the imperishable, precious blood of Christ that was shed for you. Free forgiveness is on offer. No one gets cut off from God's forgiveness by needing it. You only get cut off from God's forgiveness by ignoring it. Perhaps for you it's being involved in God's people. Perhaps for you it's reading God's word. I simply don't know. What I do know is that many, many people effectively are functioning like that swimmer in the riptide. Swimming for the shore, they feel, with increasing sense of desperation and despondency because the shore seems to get further and further away. That is what will happen unless you hang on to the rope. I, uh, when I was younger, had the privilege of getting to know a little, one of those sort of truly great men, Christian man. His name was Professor Sir Norman Anderson. His titles will tell you how much he was respected by the world. But it wasn't his titles that impressed you when you met him. It was his humble godliness. He also knew deep suffering. All his children predeceased him. And uh, he used to say, uh, to me and to others, anyone who would listen, was that um, the thing that stopped him being seduced by all the applause and praise that he got in this world, and the thing that stopped him shifting into deep despondency and despair as one after the other his children died sometimes violently, prematurely there was one single truth in his life that was absolutely steady that he found absolutely astonishing and more astonishing and glorious as he got older he used it as the title for his autobiography actually He said he was amazed that he was an adopted son.